beautiful country um, road. And as I was walking along, I was like, right, now what do I need to pray, pray about? And I had this whole list of things in my head. And God just had this, I just got this revelation from God, which was you actually don't need to do anything, just walk and just enjoy the beauty. Because I love looking at the beauty, but I often feel guilty because I'm not bringing a list of God, list of things to God. But actually, even in my conversations with God, I need to just not be doing things all the time because my identity isn't how many things I can bring to God uh, in my, on my walks. So I actually just walked for a whole hour and just enjoyed creation. And it was, I don't know why, it took me 38 years to come to this realisation. <laughs> but thank God that it has come to me. Um, but to just go out and enjoy creation, I'm still enjoying time with God. Graham and I aren't always talking together when, when we're around. We often enjoy the comfortable silence together and the same, same with, um, with, with me and God. So I'm still learning. Um, and I found it very confronting, especially when I became a mum, because I had to stop work, obviously, to have Anya, and suddenly I wasn't earning, I wasn't working, in that kind of sense, I wasn't contributing to society, well, it didn't seem like that to me anyway, and I felt like I was achieving nothing, I was constantly doing lots of things that weren't really achieving anything, it was just washing and dishes, and washing and dishes, and feeding nappies, and da 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 <laughs> as some of you will remember, uh, and I felt like, sorry, what was that? <laughs> well, it's funny because I would tell my new my mum friends that before I ha- became a mum myself. It's very easy to give that advice to someone else. But for me, it was hard to learn that. And the, one of the lo- loudest cultural narratives right now is that for mums is that you can and you probably should be a super mum. You should be able to be this amazing mum to your children, but you also should be able to maintain your career and you should be able to do a million other things, including amazing birthday cakes for your children. And um, I've realised that actually... <laughs> My poor daughter didn't even get birthday cake yesterday because she's too sick. Um, I've realised that my identity is not based on how much I achieve as a mum. And I I guess I had to just rethink about this again when I became a mum. It's actually okay to not work all the time. If the kids are asleep, it's actually okay to sit down for 10 minutes and read a meaningless book or have a rest myself. (laughs) So why am I talking about identity? Uh, just switching back onto track. Why am I talking about identity? Because we are only transformed from alien to ambassador through our identity being firmly rooted in Christ alone and the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Not our work, not well we, not what we do, not how well we perform as a mum. Uh, we cannot move into this ambassador role that we've been talking about from an alien to an ambassador if our identity is based in what we do. Now, secular culture tells us that we are called to do things. Secular culture tells us that our identity is based in whatever empire we build for ourselves. Secular culture tells us that our value and our identity is directly tied to our work achievements, how much money we make, uh, what material possessions we accumulate for ourselves. Just think about the Forbes rich list. The top, uh, it's the list of the top richest people in the world. And I was just blown away by how much money some people have when I looked at it. We say Jeff Bezos, I don't know if I've pronounced his name correctly, Jeff Bezos, the founder of Amazon, is worth $104 billion. It's actually the value of his shares in the company, but the language we use when we say he's worth this, we're actually tying his worth to the money that he's made. But the language, so the language is really unhelpful. His success of his work. What does that make someone in the slums of India worth? Or even you or I. I'm pretty sure there's no billionaires in this room. Or if you are, do let me know. 
Circular culture says billionaires on the Forbes list have made it. They are worth the most. And it's not hard to feel inadequate when we look upwards and we see all the people ahead of us who um, have more than us. If our identity and our worth is based in our material and financial assets or, or lack of them. But if secular culture calls us or tells us that we are called to do things, God says we are called into something far greater. God says we are called into relationship with Christ. God says our value is not based on what we do, but in who we are as his children. God says our identity and our value are based directly on our status in him, which is redeemed sons and daughters of God, image bearers of God. And only from that place can our identity, firmly rooted in Christ, only from that place can we learn to actually be missional as ambassadors that we've been talking about over this series. Mission is all about our relationship with Christ because we can't help but be missional as we become more like Christ. Let me say that again. Mission is all about our relationship with Christ because we can't help but become missional as a result as we become more like Christ. If we're focusing on mission, we've got it wrong. We need to be focusing on Christ. Christ was missional. If you think about his whole purpose of coming to earth, it was mission. Therefore, mission flows out of our identity in Christ. If our identity is rooted in anything else, mission becomes very hard work. Any form of living as an ambassador is hard work. But when we spend time with Christ, we become we come closer to his heart, we hear his heartbeat, we see where he's working, and it actually, mission becomes part of our DNA. We can't help but be missional. So first and foremost, we are called into relationship with Christ, listening to the God who speaks and speaking to the God who hears. It's not just a a one-way street. Asking him to open our eyes and our ears to where he's moving and inviting us to work with him as an ambassador. Now, I started going to Space last year, which is a mums and babies group, So I took Kezi along. And because I've been on this, it's been a long process of learning that everything is missional, but I am getting there slowly. And as I was driving to our first space group, I had no idea who was going to be there. I just said to God um, a really quick prayer. It wasn't a deep, profound prayer. I wasn't having deep, profound, quiet times at that point. I was doing quick arrow prayers like, Lord, please just open my eyes to see where you are working. Please show me who to connect with. And that was it. And I can tell you that I have had some amazing conversations with some of the women in that group. It's been a completely different experience than when I went with Anya. Um, and I've had so many opportunities to be missional simply because God has opened my eyes to see where he's working. And I've actually had some conversations with women where I've been able to talk to them about my faith and invite them to church or to farm church. None of them have come yet, and that's okay. I'm doing my job as an ambassador, and I'll leave the rest up to God. Which leads me on to our second point. We need to exercise our faith. We need to reimagine the way we do what we do. Excuse me. I almost pulled that all over myself. Most of our problem is that we see not by faith, but by sight. We have limited faith because we don't see much. But when we see the way that God sees, so many other possibilities open up. We often can't hear or see God in ways that we'd like to. I think most of us would probably admit that. And I could actually get really discouraged that no one from space has taken me up on the invitation to come here. But slowly I'm realising that 
I don't actually see everything that's going on. I don't know what's going on in people's hearts. I don't know where God is working everywhere. And we can actually feel um, so inadequate because we can't see where God is working. And we think, oh, we're just achieving nothing or God is not really using us. But we actually need faith, real faith, to keep going in these contexts. Faith comes from hearing the word of God, which is why we talk about talk from Scripture and speak from Scripture each week. And as we hear from God through Scripture, through testimony, from one another's stories, our faith grows. And God, God actually does speak to us. And we can see examples of history where he has spoken to encourage his people to remind them where their identity needs to lie and how we can't actually always see the big picture. Something that's really interesting to me uh, is in the Old Testament, in the timing when the Israelites were first given the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch, which are the, you know, the um, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, and their creation story that we know about in Genesis. It was in the midst of exile out of Egypt, uh, and they were in the wilderness, that the creation narrative was given to the Israelites. There in the wilderness, Moses had them all out on the plains of Moab, and he gave them the story of who they were. They had been so immersed in Egyptian culture for 400 years that they didn't really know who they were. The secular culture of Egypt told them that they were worthless slaves. The gods didn't love them. They were punished by the gods when they didn't please them enough or offer the right sacrifice. And the secular Egyptian culture told them that the world was created out of chaos and battle scenes between the gods. And you'll remember the golden calf story. Well, they built that when Moses had disappeared up the mountain. And suddenly they didn't know how to worship God. So they did the only thing that they knew, which was the Egyptian culture, to build a golden calf. Instead of relying on their faith and exercising their faith, that God had shown them he was different through the ten plagues and all the other amazing things he did to deliver them from Egypt and the fact that he'd forbidden any golden image to be created to represent him. So on the verge of moving into the promised land, they needed a new story of who they were and how they were created. They needed their identity reset in him. And this is why and why God... Um, gave them the creation narrative of Genesis, which tells them he orchestrated their creation out of love and spoken word, not cosmic conflict. They were God's chosen children, loved in his image. They were not worthless slaves. And God speaks to them in a way that no other God speaks, and he invites them into personal relationship with them, something that the foreign English, um, Egyptian gods didn't do. And this is the counter-narrative that the Israelites needed to know deep down in their souls so that they could move into the promised land as missional people, not aliens in a foreign land, which they really probably felt like. They needed this counter-narrative of Scripture so that they could exercise their faith. They were a tiny minority group of nomads who really only through their faith could they think of slaying Goliath and other giants and take on battles that really they should have lost. So the only way to be ambassadors and to know the mission and to be the mission is to know the narrative that God tells all of us through scripture and to become deeply engaged in relationship with the one who gives us that narrative. Are you following with me? If we listen to the secular narrative instead and believe that we are what we do, and achieve and how much success we bring to a business, then we will slowly die on the inside and mission will be impossible. And the Israelites would have totally failed if they had believed the secular culture. The narrative of scripture 
tells us that our life isn't to be accumulating vast amounts of wealth or to be on the Forbes list, thank goodness. Our life is the Great Commission to be in deep relationship with God and to turn and point others towards him, making disciples from every nation, to bring his light and his fragrance to all the people that we interact with in our workplaces, to join with him in the inbreaking of his kingdom, to join with him not just in prayer as we do with the Lord's Prayer, your kingdom come, Lord, here on earth as in heaven. We don't just pray that, we actually join with God in that work, our work of co-restoring, of co-creating, of co-building, of co-pastoring. Any job that partners with the Lord in bringing flourishing to this life is important. As you teach children and you help them to learn, you bring flourishing life just as Jesus did to the crowds who followed him and to the children who climbed on his knee in the town of Judea. As you bake and you cook and you prepare food for others, you help to nourish bodies just as Jesus did to the 5,000 on the lake shore. As you build homes and warehouses and design and fit electrical systems, you co-create with God (coughs) to build shelters for people to live and work in. As you organise and serve people in medical and health facilities, you bring restorative work to people's bodies, just like Jesus did at the pool of Bethsaida. As you develop software and build systems to make business flow better, you contribute to the flourishing of society. As you write legislation or work in a law firm to bring justice to a broken family situations or workplace, workplace cases, you join with Jesus as he brought justice to the oppressed. <coughs> as you help prepare statements and help to lobby against abortion and euthanasia laws, you help to look after the poor and the marginalised, providing defence for the vulnerable, like Jesus did on countless occasions. <coughs> You join with people who have gone before you, like William Wilberforce, and you show value to the lives of those whose society do not deem worthy. You are the opposite to the Forbes list. And as you greet your office cleaner, learning their name and treating them as an equal, you bring dignity and value, just like Jesus did to everyone he met. If you are a CEO and you talk to your receptionist with the same amount of respect that you would treat a senior partner in your business, you show value in bringing flourishing life to that person's world. And as you minister to the broken, the outcast, the poor, you minister alongside Jesus, just as he did to the lepers and the outcasts. And as you make wine and put on a party, you bring joy and celebration, just like Jesus did at the Um, in Cana at his first ever miracle. I love that that was his first miracle, bringing wine to a party. And Graham's favourite part, is you go out and you spend a day fishing responsibly within your catch limits, you do one of the favourite things of some of Jesus' best friends, (coughs) like they were doing when Jesus first appeared to them, or some of them after he rose again. As you care for animals and participate in conservation work and you recycle, you follow in the footsteps of the God who clearly cares for his good creation, visible throughout the Psalms in Genesis. You join in the work with Adam, one of his first charges to name and care for the animals. See, work in all its fullness is part of God's design for us. We see his intent for humanity to participate in work alongside him before the fall. Work is good but it only became complicated and toilsome after the fall as we tried to become God ourselves. Only then did sinful work enter, work that is not of God, work that does not bring flourishing life and does not mirror the work of God. Those who create pornography or work in the sex uh, slave traffic trade, those who write programs which promote violence and abuse of other human beings, and there are many other jobs that fall into this category. 
the great commission of Matthew 28 to go into all the nations and to share the love of Christ, making disciples in his name, starts right here in our city, in our own daily workplaces. And as we live to imitate Christ, we do just what Jesus did, which wasn't just speaking, it was all the things we just talked about, all the things that you are doing every day. You are participating in the work of God, bringing flourishing life to those around us. My final point as we close today is that in order to engage in mission, if we are to cultivate this deep relationship with God, if we are to become truly missional, we must engage in Sabbath. And I'm not talking about just going to church. We're going to have to leave it for another day to dive into the depths of Sabbath. And I've written a few papers on it at Bible College because it is such an amazing thing. But for today, I'm just going to have to settle with Sabbath is gift and grace. A whole day given to us by God and modelled by God who entered into Sabbath at the end of his six days of creation. Sabbath is a chance for us to focus on what God has given to us and has done for us, to celebrate together and to recharge. And it's a time to rest. It's a time to focus and refocus where our identity lies, to realign ourselves with the truth who God says we are and where our worth is found. It's a chance to check our alignment and to recalibrate before we launch into another working week because it's very easy to get derailed and to let all of these untruths or false truths that are dressed up very attractively to kind of take us off the rails during the week. Sabbath is a chance to regain perspective on what's important and to remind ourselves what the mission of God's people is. It's a chance to offer up our work to God, asking him to open our eyes to see where he is moving and inviting us to join in with him as work, his work amongst our workplace. I personally have found that taking Sabbath sometimes concerns and issues that seem so monumental and insurmountable by Friday and Saturday suddenly seem much smaller and more manageable by Monday after having taken a day stopping mulling over them and actually just focusing on Christ especially remembering the power that Christ has imparted to me, essentially restoring my perspective on life. And Marva Dawn, has anyone read any of Marva Dawn's stuff? Oh, Marva, well, she's written a few books. I think one of them is Keeping Sabbath. But Marva Dawn's written this great book, and she discusses the concept of working out of a place of rest on Sabbath. So instead of hurtling through the week, working to earn a day of rest, we start by Sabbath as our first day of our week, And that orients us and sets us up so that we go into the week from a place of rest. And it's in the midst of the Sabbath that we realise everything is gift. Our work is a gift. The ability to work is a gift. Being invited to join God with this work is a gift. And back to the story of Hannah from the book Sensible Shoes, she realises that the more she is formed in Christ and the more she places her identity there, the more she engages in true Sabbath the more she moves from a driven life to a receiving life. And it's a much healthier place to be. Let me close in prayer. Uh, And let me pray the words over you from that passage that Dee read, which speaks of this flourishing life that comes from our identity in God alone, so that we can see what he has for us. I ask the God of our master, Jesus Christ, the glory of God, to make you intelligent and discerning in knowing him personally, your eyes focused and clear so that you can see exactly what he is calling you to do.
grasp the immensity of this glorious way of life he has for his followers. Oh, the utter extravagance of his work in us who trust in him. Endless energy, boundless strength. Lord, we ask that you would help us to move from the driven life to the receiving life, the Sabbath day of rest. Help us to focus on you and our relationship with you, because only from that place can we be truly missional amongst the workplaces and places of interaction that you call us. Thank you, Father, that you love us and that we are your children. Amen. I'd like to invite the worship team up.